and welcome to the NK News podcast, recorded on Friday, August 16th in Seoul. And today I'm joined live in the studio by Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt to talk about demographics in North Korea, statistics from North Korea, as well as the end of North Korea. Nicholas Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, which is one of the 3,655 think tanks in Washington, D.C., where he researches and writes extensively on demographics and economic development generally, and more specifically, on international security in the Korean Peninsula and Asia. Dr. Eberstadt is also a founding director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Welcome, Dr. Eberstadt. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being so generous with your time. Uh, I've got so many things to, to go through today. I have prepared a, a sheaf of questions. Let's see how far we can get. Uh, I should also point out that you have many books and mon- monographs that you've written, including uh, Poverty in China, way back in 79, uh, The Tyranny of Numbers in 1995, and The End of North Korea in 1999. So how can we know things about North Korea when it is so loath to give statistics to the outside world? Well, if you are interested in... Uh statistical analysis, North Korea is kind of like Mount Everest. It's the place that you kind of want to climb. It's the place you want to kind of like get to the summit on. And as you know very well, there's something like a state-imposed data famine that's been in force for 50 years or maybe a little bit more than that. It's compounded by the problem of strategic deception the government's uh, attempt to uh, deprive outsiders of the information they could draw independent judgments about strengths and weaknesses and uh, uh, objectives and strategies. So um, if you have a sick fascination with the DPRK, (laughs) you have to... Hello to all my listeners out there. Yeah, you you, you have to uh, stay attentive and uh, try to kind of uh, up your game as uh, various sources of information you once thought that you could rely on, such as uh, mirror statistics of trade reports. Yeah, uh, what exactly, what are, how do you define mirror statistics? Well, mirror statistics are trade purchases and sales reported by the trade partner not by the government in question. North Korea almost never has reported anything regarding its own exports and imports. You can try to reconstruct export and import patterns of mainly of merchandises, services, much more difficult, but of commercial merchandise from the reports of North Korea's trading partners. You have to remember that mirror statistics inherently are problematic. Canada and the U.S. are, for all intents and purposes, twins kind of separated at birth. Mm. And when you look at Canadian-U.S. trade patterns, the two governments don't come out with identical reports Mm. on what those are. So even under the best of circumstances, they're problematic. For actually a rather long while, I think we could sum up trade partners, reports on purchases and sales of merchandise uh, from countries around the world, and get a tolerably reliable sense of what was happening in um, the non-military realm with, uh, with the DPRK. But honestly, Jacko, today, I think we have less reliable trade information mm-hmm. on North Korea than we had 35 years ago when I was you know, starting out in this racket. So but basically, is, is all uh, or are all pronouncements about the North Korean economy made these days more or less just guesswork? There's very little comprehensive quantitative information. So I'd say that it's a little bit like going back to the era of Louis the Fourteenth in France, you mm-hmm. know, uh, when you had an almost pre-quantitative set of understandings about how the economy was performing, except uh, the Sun King wasn't practicing strategic deception the way that uh, DPRK is. So, in a way, it was even a little bit easier back in those days to understand what was happening in the French economy than it is with the North Korean economy today. Can we assume that the uh, statistical famine that you spoke of 
is equally prevalent within North Korea as well as outside of it? I mean, are North Korean statisticians and government officials as ignorant as uh, the rest of us are? Well, I've wondered about that a lot. And I can't presume or pretend to have a categorical answer to this. I can tell you some of Grandpa's war stories, though. Uh, back in 1990, I did have an audience with uh, DPRK, uh, Central Statistics Bureau personnel, uh, when I was talking with them about uh, demographics. At that time, um, we had about a three or four hour uh, conversation and uh, baked two points from, uh, from our discussions. The first point was that the officials uh, said to me at one juncture, uh, you've got to be patient with us. When we're talking to ourselves, we joke that what we're using are rabatonke. We have rubber statistics. Mm -hmm. We stretch them. We do whatever we need to with them. We know that's not we're not up to international standards, but that's the way that it is. At another point in our conversations when they were discussing with me some of the work that I'd done on trying to estimate military manpower from the uh, then uh, North Korean available population statistics, uh, they said, how did you do this? You know, we're never given any data or information from the military sector. Mm. So that, of course, was almost 30 years ago. But it's not clear to me that the situation is necessarily better today than it was uh, in 1990. And I can see a lot of reasons that it might be more difficult uh, to come up with a comprehensive, secret, internal paper mm. accurately describing what's going on in the North Korean economy. So my, my sense, which may turn out to be totally wrong once we get the archives or something, but my sense is that there isn't any uh, El Dorado there. How much is it possible to understand North Korea without direct access to Korean language materials? I mean, isn't there a danger of always being limited by those things that uh, have been filtered through the mediation of interpreting and translation? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. Certainly, that's, that's always the risk with anything relating to uh, culture, to personal relations, to policy or to policy decisions or policy intentions. The reason that I, uh, the reason that I liked working with quantitative stuff is because if you can get quantitative stuff and you can kind of uh, test it or analyze it for inconsistencies, you've got you know, basic building blocks that you can compare to other places around the world. And it, it helps you make at least a kind of an effort at putting DPRK performance in international perspective. Mm. But, but, that, but that really just has, that's really just something which you can do with quantitative stuff. The qualitative understanding is absolutely essential for a whole universe of human, political, and social uh, understanding as well. But that's just a, that's a different path. Okay, let's start with the uh, the population of North Korea. I did a bit of research before this uh, interview, and I started where all good researchers do, which is on uh, wikipedia.org. Of course. Have you heard of that website? So it, I found there a 2016 estimate of um, uh, taken from the United Nations Department for uh, of Economic and Social Affairs Population Division, mm -hmm. and they had a, a 2016 estimate of 25 million 368, 620 people. Uh, and I also found a, a number from a, a 2008 census produced by the DPRK Central Bureau of Statistics, which was uh, at that time 24,000, uh, 24,052,231 people. Does that sound more or less relatively accurate? 24 to 25 million people? There's no way I can possibly know. There's no way I can possibly know, and I'll tell you why. I began working with North Korean population numbers in the late 1980s. These were very limited set of uh, releases that were transmitted to the UN and were then uh, sent to the U.S. Census Bureau. And then with friends of mine at the Census Bureau, we kind of did a kind of a workup and a reconstruction. Back in those days, the DPRK was okay with releasing those population figures 
as a sort of a quid pro quo for getting technical assistance for what was eventually going to be their first national population census mm -hmm. taken, which was conducted in early 94, but for some reason was called the 93 census. Back in those days, I think they were okay with that because they were convinced that there really was no policy significance, that this stuff was dry as dust. Well, it is dry as dust, but there is some policy significance to it as well. Once it became apparent that outsiders could draw their own independent inferences from these official numbers, there was, I think, an irresistible temptation to improve the numbers, to help them along a little bit at home. And when the first population count came out, there were so many internal inconsistencies with it that I concluded that the only way you could really make sense of this was to assume that a large chunk of the population of uh, military age uh, women had been removed from the count so that you could hide a corresponding uh, fraction of military-age men. Mm. I can't prove that that's right. It just seemed to me that that was the hypothesis that would um, reconcile so many of these inconsistencies. In the 2008 census, there's a weird contradiction in uh, implied survival rates between younger people and older people. If you look at the implied survival rates between 93 and 2008, between the first census and the second census, for people, say, under the age of 40, that population group would have been the healthiest population on earth. They, practically nobody died in that mm. group. If you looked at people who were over 40, they had a survival rate that was closer to Somalia. Having the, a super healthy population and a really unhealthy population in one country didn't make much sense to me. Mm. The, uh, the hypothesis there that I thought made kind of the most sense was that they were trying to hide the famine, that they were padding the younger population so as uh, to make it look as if there hadn't been as much uh, devastation as might have occurred. This is a perambulating way of saying if the DPRK government has doctored two censuses, two population censuses, and there is no country on earth that has officially falsified two population censuses that we know of. But if DPRK had done that, then we in the outside world really don't know very much more than what the first digit of the population count might be of mm. that. Now, there was a census scheduled for last year. Was that carried out? As far as I understand, no. As far as I have heard, it was not. Okay. And was that supposed to be funded by uh, some UN agency or some outside uh, organization? Yes. I believe the outside organization was called the Republic of Korea. My understanding, and this is only my understanding, I could be wrong about this, but my understanding was that this fell afoul and athwart the uh, the thicket of sanctions mm. and that uh, technical assistance would have um, qualified as financial transfers and that uh, rather than try to run the gauntlet on this, uh, the ROK uh, government decided not to uh, push for the technical assistance and the DPRK government took the posture that if it didn't get that money, it wasn't going to do the count. If my understanding is correct, it would seem to me that that would be rather counterproductive for the DPRK because that sort of information would be valuable for decision makers. But that's what I've heard about the story. Now, you and fellow research demographer Judith Bannister uh, projected that the population of North Korea would stabilize, that is, could cease to grow at about 34 million people in 2045 and will then experience a gradual decline. Are we on track to meet that prediction as far as you can see? It's very hard to tell for this reason. When we did that set of projections, which was in the early 1990s, I think published in 1992, mm. we had information on North Korea's population that took us up to the late 1980s. Now, 
for any country in the world, there are no reliable long-term population projections that can take you more than, let's say, two decades into the future. Uh, the reason for that, Jacko, is because population specialists have never come up with a reliable method for guessing how many babies the currently unborn are going to have. So there's always a hunger to do the projections out 20 years, do the projections out 50 years. I mean, I think in that case, we were looking out 50 years. Mm -hmm. But you're really getting into science fiction under the best of circumstances when you look out that far. What really drives changing population trends in the future are the birth levels. You know, even if you have a famine, the way that DPRK uh, had a famine, it's the birth rates rather than the death rates that do the most to determine the long-term trends. And we don't actually know what the trends have been uh, since the 80s. We don't have reliable information on how badly fertility levels collapsed in the famine era, although we've got some guesses, and we don't know how seriously they recovered after that. I think that as an exercise, this was, let's say, illustrative, but I wouldn't like bet a Starbucks cup of coffee on this as an accurate forecast for where we'll be in uh, you know, okay. And that's a very, years. very low threshold, a Starbucks cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, I, just on that, that question of uh, birth rates, I've heard anecdotal evidence about North Korean parents choosing to have one child in fulfillment of their duty to the state but resisting having more children, perhaps due to the, you know, the, the added burden of having another mouth to feed. In your uh, indirect you know, contact with North Korean defectors, have you uh, come across any evidence like this? I, th I think we hear the same sort of stories, I guess, mm -hmm. anecdotal stories. I wouldn't say that that's enough information to be able to put a decimal point on anything, but it, it seems consistent. And one of the fascinating things that came out of the homework that we did back when uh, when Judith Bannister and I were able to get uh, some limited population numbers, official numbers from the government, even though the two Koreas had been separated for decades and decades, their mortality trends and their fertility trends were kind of similar. Mm. They were surprisingly similar. And so would I be shocked if fertility in the northern half of Korea was down below the replacement level, maybe not quite as radically as in the south, mm. but heading in the same kind of parallel direction, that wouldn't make me die of surprise. Let's just say that. <laughs> have you also heard or read that contraception in North Korea is only available to couples after they have their first child? Uh, I've heard different things. I mean, I, I, I've heard different inconsistent uh, stories. And it makes me wonder whether there have been changes in rules over time or whether there are differences in different geographic localities or whether there may be differences depending upon one's songbun, just depending upon one's uh, political uh, status classification. Mm. I don't pr uh, pretend to have enough information to be able to reconcile the different things that I've heard there. But yes, but that's certainly something that I've heard. Okay, let's uh, talk about uh, urbanization uh, in North Korea. Now, according to the 2008 population census, uh, Pyongyang had a population of 3.2 million. So I went through... Uh, again, through that Wikipedia page, found the list of the populations of the top 27 cities in North Korea uh, from Anju to Wonsan, which all had a population of 100,000 100, or more. And I added them up together yep. and only came up with a total population of 10.4 million yep. out of the you know apparent 24 million of that year of census. Yep. So it, it looks like to me, uh, more than half of the population in North Korea live in towns with a population smaller than 100,000 people. Yep. How does this gel with the figure of 60-plus percent urbanization that I've seen thrown around? So if one wants to make sense of that, if one wants to try to reconcile those uh, seeming inconsistencies, the way to do it would be this. The way to do it would be to say that government policy works for a dispersion of population into smaller urbanized settlements. 
and a dispersion of urban population across the country for military, strategic, security reasons, and a sort of a breaking factor, a slowing factor on urban growth for the, those same sets of considerations as well. That would be one way of trying to square this circle. Of course, we also know that North Korea's economy has been in bad shape uh, for a long time and that generally urbanization tends to occur with economic development. Mm. Uh, this may be another clue as to why urbanization seems to have uh, been so slow according to North Korean official figures. There is an entirely different hypothesis that has been uh, floated by a researcher at, uh, at the Asan Institute here. Are you about to cite Goh Myung-hyun? Because he's in my next question. I just spoke to him on the phone before coming in for this interview. All right, okay. okay. <laughs> well, I mean, so, so Dr. Goh worked with satellite imagery. Very high-res stuff, right? I mean, talking down to the square kilometer. Yeah, down to the square kilometer. And, of course, there's a, there's a lot of assumptions when you're way up in the sky and you uh, aren't able to do the head count sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, but if, if you do a sort of a, you know, a range of assumptions about what the population density is in these settlements, uh, Dr. Koh came up with some uh, tentative calculations that suggested a much lower proportion of North Korea's population might be urban. Yeah, he said 25%, yeah, 20, which is as, as little as a quarter, and that's a lot less than the 61% that mm -hmm. I found somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And he said that that would imply three farmers for each city dweller. It would be a radically different picture of life in North Korea from what the official very limited mm. uh, population statistics suggest to the outside world. Now, we'd need, I think, to have uh, Dr. Koh's work uh, replicated mm. or attempted by many other researchers. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderfully creative idea. I'd, I'd like to see a dozen people try to replicate his work, and then we'd have, a, you know, I think we'd have a better sense about this curious result that he got on its face is it, is it impossible that the north korean government would misrepresent its level of urbanization radically mm. no i don't think on its face that's <laughs> uh you know preposterous to uh, presume at all but do you lean personally towards either a higher or a lower count for urbanization figures well, well if dr goes figures are correct. There are a couple of things that we have to figure out in this puzzle. Uh, I mean, one of them would be why there was such a strain on the public distribution system during the famine period. If three quarters of the population's rural, then why was it so hard to yeah. uh, to procure the uh, the cereal grain that was needed for the one quarter of the population that was living in urban areas? Secondly, if you have a, an economy that's as militarized as the North Korean economy is, are we saying that you know every third uh, person in the countryside is some sort of a defense uh, support auxiliary? Mm. Uh, so there, there are other things that would have to be squared with what we think we know about the North Korean economy's uh, performance and distribution and stuff. But the idea that there might not be as many people in North Korea as we assume, the idea that there might not be as many urban people in North Korea, if both the numerator and the denominator were smaller than we think, thought, then the urbanization ratio wouldn't be as weirdly low. Mm. Uh, obviously, all of this is just, for the moment, fascinating speculation that we can't conclusively determine. It is. And we send a, uh, a shout out to Dr. Goh Myung-hyun of the Asan uh, yes. Research Institute, who was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about uh, economy and sanctions. So yes. uh, I didn't get to talk population with him, but I'm glad to bring him into this one now. Yeah, he's wonderfully inventive and creative. Great, I'm, glad, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned him. Now, I understand that uh, couples in cities in North Korea marry later, but have fewer offspring than in the countryside. Does this also attenuate the rate of urbanization somewhat? Well, possibly. But in much of the world, 
the arithmetic of urbanization is basically driven by migration. So what I think we'd what I think we'd want to know is what the rules are for permitting people to change location and move to cities. Back in the 80s, which is a very different world from today, maybe gone with the wind compared to mm. today. Uh, back in the 80s, of official North Korean population information that were transmitted to the UN that we worked with indicated that there were about a million or two million people who were authorized to move from one location to another. I mean, it sounds like a lot, but it you know, was less than 10% of the population, mm -hmm. 5% of the population at the time. If there is the same uh, degree of uh, authorized mobility or if there's informal mobility, uh, then you'd expect there to be more of a kind of like a, a – more of an incentive for a trickle to the cities. But I'll, even back in those days, I'll tell you something which I thought was rather intriguing when, mm. we, when we talked to the uh, statistics officials in Pyongyang. We asked them why they wanted to hold a population count, a national census. Up until then, they'd worked with household registration data. Um, they didn't point out to me that that was run by the Ministry of Public Security, but I kind of understood uh, how mm -hmm. that thing worked. They said that they wanted to hold a population count because they were losing track of the national population. They, they couldn't keep track of the national population. Of all the places where you wouldn't expect to hear that, well, I'll, North I'll, Korea is one of them. Yep. And that was actually consistent with some of the work that Judith Bannister and I had done in this book. We'd been trying to make sense of the official figures that were transmitted to the UN, and most of the stuff we could kind of reconcile. I mean, you know, when you get population numbers from any country, there's always some errors in there. There's always some stuff you have to kind of like figure out and inconsistencies. But there was this one little lump of inconsistencies that we just couldn't work out. No matter how we tried to do it, we ended up with too many grannies. Hmm. We ended up with about, a, as I recall, 100,000 or 200,000 too many women from their late 50s onwards. And when uh, my new friends in Pyongyang told me that they were losing track of the population, I said, ah, okay, here's a sign of this. Uh, there are a lot of grannies in North Korea who have passed away but whose children haven't reported that mm. to the authorities so that they can continue to get the rations. Mm. You know, so that, and what that may have to do with who's moved and who has who's moved on to the great hereafter, you know, figures into this tableau. Did they take that uh – suggestion by you seriously and say, oh, yeah, you might be right there. It could be people uh, trying to uh, fiddle with rations. Well, we, I mean, we didn't want to rat out any uh, grannyless households. <laughs> I, you know, I, I kind of made a note of that, that, ah. yeah, okay, this, this tracks with what we've already right. done. Let's uh, now talk about making predictions about North Korea's future. I'm going to quote something from uh, Bruce Cummings from his article, Getting North Korea Wrong, in the, journal, uh, sorry, in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in 2015. To my knowledge, the first time that the scenario for the North's collapse appeared was on June 25, 1990, the 40th anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War, when Nicholas Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled The Coming Collapse of Korea. I cut it out and pasted it on the wall of my study since I had been making the opposite argument, no collapse, since the Berlin Wall fell. Life would tell us who was right. So was Bruce Cummings right? Well, he, he wasn't right about who started the Korean War. He wasn't right about predicting the past. But he was right about North Korea's collapse, although I hope he didn't get any solace out of its continuation. Where did you and so many others go wrong in predicting that, yeah, surely it wouldn't survive for another 30 years? I think that I had... I think that I had the wrong political model in my mind about the way that the North Korean uh, political system worked. I've, I've thought about that obviously a lot. I think my errors were in a couple of areas. Uh, first of all, I didn't appreciate just how much the North Korean political system had evolved and mutated from its Soviet Stalinist origins. It had already by the 1980s, I think in retrospect, 
This, uh, this becomes clear and benefit of hindsight. It had evolved substantially away from a Soviet-style control system and social control mechanisms that were brought in under the Stalin era have been kind of improved and maybe even perfected. So I think that that's one of the things which I th which gave the North Korean system more resilience than I expected. Number two, big change in the ideology of DPRK as opposed to the Soviet satellite state that was established in the northern uh, zone. Certainly by the 60s or 70s and continuing onwards uh, from there, since the Soviet collapse, the transition away from Marxism, Leninism, and towards Kim Il-sung thought, uh, towards Kim Jong-il thought, I think that probably, I think that probably was a much better foundation for stability for the state. And the third part, which I never would have imagined in my wildest dreams, was that the Western world, uh, ROK, USA, Japan, would come to the economic rescue of the DPRK state during the era of sunshine and engagement in the 1990s. Uh, I, my imagination was too limited to understand that contingency, which of course is what happened. When I was looking at the possibility of state collapse, I was really thinking, as I explain in this book, I was thinking about economic collapse. There are lots of different ways that a state can collapse. You can have a putsch, you can have an assassination, you can have a revolt, you can have a, you know, a military takeover, you have an invasion, I guess. What I was looking at was the economic crisis that occurred after the end of the Soviet uh, Union and the end of Soviet support. And it seemed to me that the DPRK was coming closer and closer to economic collapse. Now, that's a very loosey-goosey word, economic collapse. But mm -hmm. I, me I meant something very specific by that. I meant the breakdown in the division of labor within an economy, the way that people trade their work for food. We'd seen economic collapses of that nature that I just described in the previous century, usually it happened in wartime, happened at the end of the war in Japan, the end of the war in Germany. The signs of economic collapse are that lots of people move out of the cities and move into the countryside because that's the only way you can like hunt for food and mm. feed your family. I don't think that we will know how close DPRK came to that sort of a definition of economic collapse until the day sometime in the future when we get our hands on DPRK archives, if the archives survive. But, uh, but uh, it did not happen. And is that economic collapse the same um, concept as the uh, epic economic fail that you wrote about in your Asan Institute report in uh, November 2015, or is that a different idea? Completely different idea. I'm sorry, okay. No, no, well, I mean, there, the, econ the economic collapse is like a crisis of... A crisis of the, what do you call it, the skeleton of the economy. Mm -hmm. So you could have a famine in, a, uh, in an economy that was not verging on economic collapse. You could have a famine, for example, in uh, Ethiopia in the, uh, in the 80s, even when Ethiopia's economy was not verging on collapse because a large, vulnerable population didn't have enough purchasing power to be included in the workings of the economy. So hunger and economic, in, in, in any time that there is an economic collapse, there's certainly hunger, but the fact of hunger doesn't prove that you're near an economic collapse, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. The economic fail was talking about North Korea's remarkably poor economic performance in relation to what people thought they knew about the human resources, you know, the, the education and the health and the 
what we thought we knew about the urbanization of the population. Mm. There's just like a big, big mismatch between what looked like the pool of human talent, a pool of human resources, and what you could see in the way of uh, then-reported trade and economic performance in the international sphere, just because we didn't have information on the GNP or the domestic economy. When did that epic economic fail happen? It It was a long time coming. As you know, Jacko, back in the 1960s, people in South Korea thought that the North Korean economy uh, on a per capita basis Mm. was more productive than the South. And people in the South didn't think that they exceeded the North Korean economy on a per capita basis until sometime in the 1970s. The trajectory towards this fail started in the 1960s and 70s, but then it really significantly worsened, perhaps coincidentally, in the period which in which we saw the political rise of Kim Jong-il. It became more and more, more and more of a kind of a contradiction, so that North Korea's level of trade performance was so much lower than what one would have expected of a country with the sorts of levels of education and urbanization and health that we guessed or maybe kind of thought North Korea had. By the time that uh, Kim Jong-un inherited power from his dad, North Korea looked as if it was in a category of one in the world economy. The reason I did this homework was to try to bring North Korea back into the story of modern economic development. There's so much discussion that North Korea is unique. My purpose in trying to do this uh, homework paper that you're describing Mm. was to say that, well, actually, North Korea isn't that unique. It's not all floods and it's not all sanctions. So any country in the world that has the worst of class business climate, you know, uh, is going to end up with very poor economic performance no matter what else is going on. So it was it was an attempt actually to bring the North Korean story back into the rest of the post-war human family. Late last December, uh, either undeterred by Cummings' criticism or in the spirit of scholastic irony, you wrote a piece for a national review that was titled, Nicholas Eberstadt, My North Korea Prediction for 2019. And the subtitle was, The North Korean nuclear crisis is in a sort of zitzkrieg phase, a period of seeming calm that is doomed not to last. Uh, in that piece, you wrote, it is, not North Co- Sorry, it is North Korea and always North Korea that decides when there will be meetings, who will be invited, what will be discussed, and when the talking will cease. So my question for you is, this, you wrote this a couple of months before the Hanoi meeting. Who decided at Hanoi when the talking would cease? And who decided when the meeting at Panmunjom would occur? Also, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes the, uh, the orange-haired one has upended 70 years of DPRK diplomatic protocol. And that happened first at Hanoi this year, and in a way, even more remarkably, at the meeting at Panmunjom at the end of uh, at the end of June. Those are really striking departures from the North Korean diplomatic tradition up until this year. I, I take that point. That's an interesting one. But I mean, to suggest that North Korea is always in control of how the crisis unfolds doesn't that take away the idea of agency from other parties? Well, I don't think it takes away their agency, it may take away their uh, intelligence or their uh, their strategic skill. Mm. But I would say, I mean, I'd give uh, DPRK decision makers and diplomats a great deal of credit for managing the North Korean nuclear crisis uh, extraordinarily well by comparison with their diplomatic counterparts and adversaries. I would say that the North Korean team or the succession of North Korean teams over the last almost 30 years pretty thoroughly outclassed all of their counterparts. <laughs> so they're making up diplomatically what they're failing in economically, perhaps. Something like that, maybe. Why do you use the uh, scare quotes around the word crisis in this case? Because I think that this is a managed crisis. Usually when one hears the word crisis, it sounds as if there's something that's out of control. Mm. I would say this this actually is rather carefully and skillfully managed by the DPRK side. 
maybe if we wanted to take the scare quotes off, we'd say the DPRK march towards nuclear weapons status or the DPRK brinkmanship policy of acquiring nuclear weapons. But thinking of it as a crisis makes it sound like it's an earthquake or mm. something. And I, I don't think the record suggests it's anything like that at all. It's an interesting point. Before we go on about uh, the denuclearization de talks, etc., I've got to uh, throw you a question from left field. There are, as I mentioned in the introduction, a lot of think tanks in Washington doing work on North Korea. Some of them, uh, I, from my experience, very few of them do actual research and analysis. Uh, a lot of them do what Bruce Klingler called finger-wagging advocacy. Uh, when he was on this podcast. I quite like that phrase, yeah, finger-wagging yeah. advocacy. So which think tanks do you think are doing a better-than-average job, and what are the key attributes of a useful or productive North Korea program? Well, if you want to talk about actual North Korea research, I think there's really not very much of it anywhere in the United States. I mean, Washington, D.C. is a place where everybody has an opinion on North Korea and not everybody deserves to have an opinion on North <laughs> Korea. Um, see, talk about real research. I think Marcus Noland at the Peterson Institute's done wonderful research on the North Korean economy. I think that the uh, Cold War International History Project at the Wilson Center has done fabulous archival work. There'll be others that I'm uh, that I'm missing, obviously. But I'd say that those are the two, I'd say that those are both exemplary. Mm. Uh, now, there are, in the world of policy analysis and public policy analysis and foreign policy advice, sometimes people have to kind of go partially blind or more. They, they're, asked for, uh, they're asked for advice, they're asked for decisions in circumstances where they've got uh, very little information. Uh, the North Korean government has done its best to try to assure that outsiders will have as little information as possible to make decisions on. I would say that those two, you know, those two programs I just mentioned are two of the ones which try to increase our stock of knowledge about the DPRK. Mm. And I think, they've, I think they've done a very good job. If you look around the world, there aren't that many programs that can say the same. It's a uh, part of the reason is that uh, studying in any sort of systematic or uh, rigorous way, uh, studying DPRK can be a tenure killer mm. in, a, in a lot of universities and different sorts of programs. Uh, it's not a coincidence that Marcus Noland is at a, a think tank, not a university. Mm. And you know, not, there are fine young people who are interested in North Korea's economy in the U.S., none of them are in uh, a conventional uh, Department of Economics right. PhD program. Is it a, a fair summary to say that the work of a lot of think tanks is, is really just trumped up, uh, and pardon the pun, uh, lobbying? I think that's a real, uh, I think that's a huge problem. I think that is a huge problem, uh, not just in Washington, but for think tanks across the U.S. and for think tanks even across the Pacific. Mm. There are also new risks, I think. It's not a secret that the South Korean government these days is carpet bombing Washington with lobbying money. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, you know, which gets its information out of the Foreign Agent Registration Act stuff from the Justice Department, yep. according to that, I think the last report was that Seoul's lobbying in Washington, their funding was more than... Israel, Saudi Arabia, and China combined, it was by far the largest of any foreign lobbying effort. Mm. And, and that's, just the, that's just the effort that is reported yeah. to the Justice Department. It's really hard to tell how that affects research and how that affects the, uh, the tenor of work. But I 
think you'd have to be blind not to notice that that's in the background there. Mm. Okay, a foundational question here. Do you believe North Korea will ever give up its nuclear weapons to the satisfaction of the United States? Not with the current leadership configuration. That's the foundation. You mean basically with Kim Jong-un in charge? The, not with Kim Jong-un in charge, not with the Kim family as we have known it mm -hmm. running the show. Possibly with a Gorbachevian leadership there. But the, the reason I'm even a bit skeptical about that is that the North Korean government, you remember this, they paid so much attention to diagnosing the fall yep. of Eastern European socialism and the USSR. Mm -hmm. And they had such a disdain and contempt for the Gorbachevian, the original Gorbachevian figure himself. Yeah. It's just my imagination, I admit, is constrained, but I just can't imagine that sort of a leadership type being uh, you know, rising through the ranks. So if that's the case, what are our best options to deal with a, uh, a nuclear uh, North Korea? A lot of people will give you different answers on that. It's a bit of a Rorschach test. Yeah, I we've guess. had a few of them on this podcast, as you can imagine. Sure. Well, I guess my own druthers, and there's no science in this. This is uh, this is a degustibus. This isn't something that's uh, it's founded in statistics. My own uh, my own druthers would be to try to do the best that one can to deter a war while simultaneously reducing the North Korean government's killing power. I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote something about this uh, last year where I kind of tried to describe, you know, kind of like a, this is a concept. It's obviously a lot easier said than done because that's exactly what the government in Pyongyang does not wish to face. And they've given an awful lot of serious thought uh, as to how to thwart and confound that sort of an approach. Why can't the world simply recognize North Korea as a nuclear state and learn to live with it? Well, there are a certain number of people and even a certain number of serious people who say, do it, you know, get real move to uh, to a realist foreign policy with DPRK. The, the problems, I think, are several. Number one, if the North Korean government is a revisionist state that really intends uh, to command the entire Korean people, to gather the entire Korean people under its leadership, recognizing the permanent nuclear authority of North Korea, may increase the chance of war rather than reduce the chance of war. Number two, if the North Korean government uh, continues in the patterns that we've seen it exercise with regard to other sorts of military material, we shouldn't be complacent about the idea that DPRK might not sell nuclear weapons to other places like the Middle East or and destabilize other parts of the world. I mean, those would seem to me to be the two mm. biggest drawbacks uh, to saying, fine, you're nuclear, we're just going to do the old George Cannon policy now. Are you advocating no removal of any sanctions until North Korea fully denuclearizes? I'd like to see the sanctions enforced a lot harder. I'd, I'd like to see the sanctions get a little bit more uh, watertight. The do you see that happening with China and Russia currently feeling the way they are about no, of course of course they do. of course the governments in beijing and the kremlin uh, want to do the opposite and of the government uh, in seoul let's be honest wants the opposite as well the i'd say that the argument against me or my own argument against me would have to do with the resumption of famine Okay. And because if if the north korean economy is as distorted and dependent as i believe it is at the Eberstadt policy would be almost a guarantee for a resumption of famine. Uh, I think that the if a strict sanctions policy is enforced, the people who advocate that have it incumbent upon them to come up with a plan or a program for how to feed the population without feeding the government. It seems to me that that's 
uh, that there is a strong argument for something that I would call intrusive aid, for something that would if the historical analogy would be to Herbert Hoover's uh, relief program for Soviet Russia back in the early 1920s. But that's just to say there, there is a possible way of dealing with that, you know, non-trivial objection to what I'm describing. Mm. When we talk about Russian and Chinese thwarting of the sanctions regimen, of course, I, of course we see that now and we may see more of that. But if the U.S. government is interested in maintaining or tightening sanctions, I believe the U.S. government has got more uh, cards in its hand than it may appreciate. For the time being, at least, the, the uh, predominance of the dollar and the importance of the dollar as a reserve currency gives the U.S. an awful lot of leverage in secondary sanctions with regard to countries that are violating different aspects of, uh, of critical policy. And if the U.S. government were to sanction uh, a dozen medium-sized financial and commercial organizations in China that have a fair international presence and you know, kind of make them evaporate, the Chinese attitude towards trade with North Korea might change. Now, under current circumstances, would further poison an already very bad relationship with China. And one would only do that if one were a policymaker in Washington, if one thought that the completion of the North Korean nuclear and missile program was a clear and present threat to the United States itself. If one thought North Korea is going to behave like Pakistan or some other nuclear country, then it'd be foolish or worse to uh, to antagonize uh, the government in Beijing with you know with such actions and mischief. But if people in the U.S. decision-making process believe that the North Korean nuclear threat is as dire as they say they do, then accepting the worsening of relations with China and Russia through imposing tighter sanctions via the secondary sanction mechanism would be, some, would be a cost that they would presumably be willing to bear. But that all depends upon how serious one believes the nuclear danger from a nuclearized capable North Korean government would be. For you, what are the ethical questions for international purveyors of economic assistance and even possibly, even ostensibly humanitarian assistance to the DPRK? The Songbun program, the political program of Songbun in uh, DPRK, and more generally the human rights situation in North Korea. How can one, one must be attentive to not worsening the human rights plight of the subjects of the North Korean regime while thinking one is making things better through aid administration. So you think that because North Korean population is divided up into uh, political classes, uh, loyal, wavering, and, and uh, whatever the hostile third word, or hostile. complex. Yeah. Uh, that because of that, it, it kind of argues against humanitarian aid? Well, it argues against the conventional administration of humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. I mean, do the thought experiment. Uh, how many members of the core class do we think perished of starvation in the 1990s? And how many members of the hostile classes do we think perished? Uh, if the government regards you as being barely more than zero to start with, uh, they're probably not going to go out of their way to uh, deal with your human security problems. All right. How important do you think uh, unification is to North Korean long-term strategy? I think it is, it is central to North Korean ideology. And from that, I presume that it is critical to North Korean strategy as well. I'm no military guy. I don't know from military tactics. But... 
everybody who claims that they know about military things tells me that North Korean military forces are not defensively positioned, they're offensively positioned. They have been since since the ceasefire in 53. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to give you a, a thought experiment here, I'd like, or an analogy thought experiment, I guess. I'd like you to imagine a, uh, a parish priest who is now in his uh, 60s and who no, no longer has the faith of his uh, seminarian uh, youth, but he still preaches those sermons every week, and he tells the people, you know, this is what God wants. Now, he no longer believes in God, but he knows that this is a useful myth that uh, helps to... Uh, and Also, of course, if he were to reject it completely, he'd be out of a job, he'd lose his pension, he'd lose his house. Now, is it not possible that uh, uh, unification can be used by the elites, especially for, uh, for, by Kim Jong-un, as a, uh, as a useful tool without actually believing it, particularly because 45 unruly South Kore- million South Koreans would be very, very hard to put into the Songbun classes and the weekly self-study, self-criticism sessions? That's a long question. What do you think? I, I think that's an excellent question because we saw that happen in the Soviet Union. We we saw that. I mean, uh, who was the la- who was the last Soviet ruler who really believed in socialism? Khrushchev? I don't know. Mm. It, the place continued for decades after afterwards when one had a sort of a cynical use of the dying ideology. So I think it's I think it's entirely an apt question. So. Is it possible that Kim Jong-un is kind of a rent seeker who's using a dead ideology to uh, keep power and stave off his own masses? Uh, yes, sure, it's possible. It seems to, it, it seems to me that they, they do an awfully good act, though, mm. if, that's, uh, if they've lost the faith. They still do an awfully good act. And... I think that you could kind of, you could probably do the act with a little bit less investment in the military. Mm-hmm. You know, there's science fiction stories by, you know, uh, paranoid masters like uh, the late great Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. about uh, telling the masses there's a war on the surface of the earth while they're sacrificing underneath. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but everybody up on, uh, on the surface of the earth is living like, you know, princelings in Malibu, California. <laughs> um, I would, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to suggest that I don't think the North Korean leadership is uh, cynical. They may also believe some of what they say. But what do you think Kim Jong-un would do with 45 million South Koreans who, on the one hand, would be uh, difficult to control, as we've seen here in South Korea? On the other hand, they would infect his 24 million North Koreans with uh, impure ideologies and materialism and things. Of course, I don't know. My first guess would be that the North Korean leadership has given a lot of thought to that over the last, you know, 60 years. If the North Korean leadership is serious about uh, about a unification, what my guess would be that there'd be a file on every family in the South. Mm. My guess would be that almost everybody in the South would already have a songbun assigned to them. And my guess would be that the Songbun isn't a core class, except for a very, very small number of people who we might not expect. I tell you what, if you're right, and I'm, I'm going to make an analogy here. It, it's going to be a crazy one, perhaps. But uh, do you remember the, uh, the truther conspiracy theory about 9-11 being an inside job? One of my favorite arguments against conspiracy theories like that is, if it's true, yeah. the number of people who have to be involved will will be so extraordinary that somebody one day will come out on their deathbed and say, you know what, it's you know, I was part of this. And I want to say that if you're correct, or if your thought experiment is, is accurate, that yeah, there's already a file on most, if not all, South Korean families, there's already a songbun, etc. At some stage somebody's gonna to defect to South Korea and say, Yeah, I was part of that and, and I, I can show you exactly how the North Korean government planned to implement its uh, ideological control over forty five million South Korean people. We haven't had that moment yet. Has, haven't had it at all. No, haven't not, had it. Not, not even something all. close to it. Not even the sense that, yeah, I was a, a sweeper of the grounds of the archives that held all the files on the South no. Korean people. So it hasn't happened yet. No, we haven't seen anything like that. You're absolutely right. And that's why I have a bit of a, a struggle with believing that Kim Jong-un really wants to see 45 million more people to worry about their songbun and their behavior and their weekly uh, you know, worship services to him and his father and his grandfather. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a very, very reasonable objection. Well, there you go. Score one for Jacko today. <laughs> um, now, 
there are some who say that economic engagement with North Korea would hasten a collapse. Are you of that school or not? I, th- I think that econ- economic engagement would undermine the long-term legitimacy. I don't know if that means hasten or not. Mm. Okay. If, the, if you're right, should we be, rather than trying to isolate North Korea, flooding it with, with trade to hollow out the system, bring in corruption, and, and you know, uh, reduce the faith in the ideology? If there, were way, if there were a way of doing that without funding the military machine, absolutely. The difficulty is that since it's a total war economy, that's the first priority, and all of the additional surplus goes towards the, you know, goes towards the military advance. Yeah, money's fungible, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, briefly, um, tell us about the time you got a death threat from a North Korean diplomat. Oh, God. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't... You'll have to decide if this counts as a death threat. I don't get out very much. So um, I, mean, I, I don't have a you know, separate life as 007 or anything. So I do this uh, manuscript that I've mentioned already on North Korea's population and uh, with my co-author Judith Bannister. We give a copy to the U.S. government. We give a copy to the South Korean government. We give a copy to the DPRK government. Don't hear anything back for about a year. Then I get a call from Deputy Ambassador uh, for the DPRK to the UN mission. Mm. And in New York. In New York. Yeah. And we've, you know, we know each other slightly. We've had you know, contact over the years before. And um, he's trying to talk me out of publishing this uh, book, which I'm going to publish. Uh, and I guess the, to cut to the chase, the money line was uh, something like, I'll get it almost correct, maybe not 100% correct, but it was, it was something like, Mr. Eberstadt, you must think clearly about your problem, about my problem. Problem. That was my problem. You must not publish this book. We know where you live. We know about your wife. We know about your children. You must not publish this book. That's why I say that it, that sounded a little bit like a death threat yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. So it was a kind of a like a I don't know what you call it, a blink moment, a mm. fight or flight moment. And so my blink was, oh, this is a bluff. And I don't know exactly why I thought it was a bluff. I I guess I had the feeling that he seemed as if he were uncomfortable and reading talking points or something. But that's <laughs> I've, that's in retrospect. Yeah. So anyhow, so he gets mad at me and hangs up because I say no, I'm not going to do this. But then he wants a favor from me about mm. a year later. So he calls me up then. He says, oh, Mr. Everstad, how's your lovely wife? How are your golden children? And, well, I took the point of that to be, maybe I interpreted wrong, but I thought the point of that part of the patter was, look, guy, you're not so special. You know, (laughs) I'll, you know, I'll flatter you and your kids. I'll threaten you with death. You know, I'm just a guy doing my job. Right. (laughs) Okay. uh, Now, last question today. Uh, Yesterday, you had a piece published in the New York Times, yesterday on uh, August 15th, which, of course, is a liberation day in North and South Korea, the end of of the Second World War, VJ Day. Uh, So uh, you titled that uh, Kim Jong-un's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year and subtitled, for perhaps the first time, America seems to be outmaneuvering Team North Korea. Why has it been a bad year for Kim Jong-un? Uh, this gets back to your earlier uh, question about whether North Korea always controls everything. Uh, I would argue that the signs that it was a bad year for North Korean uh, diplomacy was number one, being uh, summoned down to Panmunjom to meet with uh, the Donald and then to be dismissed by the Donald after a little kind of uh, superficial photo op. With no, uh, with no more than that. Uh, the failure to secure benefits from the Hanoi summit, the failure at least so far to undo the sanctions uh, straitjacket that the international community has ensnared the North Korean economy in, and also... I'm I'm not a I'm not a good Kremlinologist, but some of the people who uh, pay much more attention than this than I do, uh, people like uh, Robert Carlin, seem to believe that there is a debate going on 
in uh, the pa- front pages of Nodong Shinmun these days, mm. uh, which can be read as one side attacking the uh, approach that seems to be Kim Jong-un's approach to uh, working this nuclear problem. Take all of those things together and I'd say this looks like it hasn't been a great year for the dear respected leader. Mm. And I say this having a lot of dear respect for him in what he was able to do in the initial years of his rule, taking over a shambolic Mm. economy and state and party from his feckless father and rebuilding them so that you could actually, after 36 years, have the pageantry of another uh, workers' congress. He he did quite a lot that I would not have expected of him. Mm. But I think he's been, I I argue at least, that he's been set back on his uh, heels this year. Yeah, he's played well with a uh, a poor hand. Exactly. But I would say that for all of his faults, I would say that in the international arena, his dad played well with a poor hand and his grandpa played well with a poor hand. Perhaps that could be an epitaph for all three of them. Uh, that's where we're going to have to leave it today. Dr. Everstadt, thank you so much again for joining us today. Can people follow you on Twitter? I'm uh, pre-digital. I have no Twitter uh, handle. I'm not on Facebook. But you can Google me or you can look on American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org, for my scholars' webpage. That's right. And I've, I've uh, uh, to our listeners out there, I have, in fact, been on that page for the last day and a half, and there's quite a lot of your work up there. So AEI.org uh, and look there for the page of uh, Nicholas Eberstadt. Thanks again for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. You can save $50 on your first year subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating the podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, tapping of tables, awkward silences, false starts, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of the podcast were partially funded by the Unique Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs> <laughs>